3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Hello, it's Monday morning. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast. It is absolutely lovely to have your company this morning. I hope you had a good weekend. I hope you have a really decent week in store. Evan Wallace is my name. It is 7am. It is Monday, the 28th of March. And great, as always, to have some really good programming for you on this Monday morning. On the show today, we'll be speaking with Paul Power from the Refugee Council of Australia, also speaking to with Naomi Bund about all things education policy in the lead up to the federal election. And then also to David Bowman on the Gondwanan Forest of Tasmania and fire threats that are, well, that are very much present there and increasing so in the context of global warming. How was your weekend? I had a very, very musical weekend. It was a delight, actually. In many ways, it was a music week kicking off from Thursday evening at the Corner Hotel, seeing the Whitlams. That was a lot of fun. I do love that venue. I really like the acoustics there. You probably heard me rabbit on about that, but oh, it was great seeing the full gang back and forth. And yeah, with a bit of grunt behind them, I saw Tim Friedman uh, last year play at, uh, at a solo venue at um, Alice Springs, and that was lovely. But hearing the songs as they were written with the full gang, so good, really good drive, good energy, a few sing-alongs too, and classic, classic tunes. Hard to believe that they've been playing for 30 years. It's their 30th anniversary. I'm wearing a T-shirt today and uh, it has the Whitlams on there, and it says underneath, established 1992. Then from there, well, more and more and more music with the Queenscliff by the Pier Festival. I haven't been to a music festival for years. I'm sure that's the case for all of you listeners as well too. Even if it just has been two, um, then uh, it's still a long time uh, for, for all of us music appreciators. And then also too, well, even more importantly, the artists and all of the incredible uh, employees of the music industry, festival industry, who support those artists and these great events too. And that was a thrill. And on today's 3CR Monday Breakfast, going to hear lots of music that was uh, really pumping out over the last couple of days, the likes of Julia Stone and Boy and Bear and Mama Kin and Spender. We played them last week, but we liked it so much that we're going to play them again this week too. Um, and client liaison as well. It's going to be fun. It's going to be a really, really fun morning. Uh, and before we get into our by the beer, all Aussie music um, <laughs> hour and a half, um, well, something a little bit different. Um, the world at the moment is is definitely not the the world's most enjoyable place. It's full of uncertainty and and full of risks. And this song was written at a time when well. Um, we were staring at, at similar challenges back in in 1968 uh, with Vietnam in the background, and then also too um, 
Um, also, too, thinking about civil rights challenges within the US as well. Um, a huge, huge period of uncertainty when this song was composed. Um, and if the technology here was allowing me to, to get it all going, then you'd be hearing it right now. But we'll cut to a short break and we'll be back shortly on 3CR Breakfast. Melbourne Jazz Jammers present the second Newport Jazz Festival. 60 plus bands, seven venues and three days of great music from some of Melbourne's finest musicians. 29th of April to 1st of May. Trad, swing, blues, big band, Latin, bossa, bebop and beyond. Tickets at the Newport Bowls Club box office in Market Street or online at melbournejazzjammers.com.au The Friendly Festival. The Newport Jazz Festival is a 3CR supporter. Three CR breakfast. It's Evan here. Hope you're having a really, really good morning. Let's do take two with this song, and hopefully everything's up and running and going along smoothly. Um, but it does look like we're having a few technical difficulties at the moment. So, with that in mind, we're going to cut to our first um, first interview for today's show. Um, last week we spoke with Matt Kunkel from the Migrant Workers Centre, talking all about different challenges relating to Australia's visa arrangements. It's 3CR Monday Breakfast, and here's our conversation with Matt Kunkel. And now we are joined by Matt Kunkel, the CEO of the Migrant Workers Centre, to discuss the centre's recent Lives in Limbo report and the recent news that Australia will begin recognising degrees from India. Thank you so much for joining us here today, Matt. Thanks for having me. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, maybe we'll just start off because I know there's so much to cover. Um, maybe I'll start off with the report because I think it outlines a lot of the issues that we have seen with visa and migration pathways. Um, we know that the migration policy encourages migrant workers to sign up for an Australian education, even though an Australian education does not guarantee permanent residency. And the process on average takes five to one, five, five years to 13 years. And you know, I know that student visas are also some of the most approachable as long as you can afford the tuition fee. And a lot of people that um, do come to Australia um, are on a student visa and most of them have also already completed a tertiary education before coming here. So there's a lot of nuances there. Um, would you mind maybe speaking on why these degrees are not being recognised in Australia and what barriers this actually creates for international students? Yeah, sure. Look, um, there are several reasons, I guess, why they're not being recognised. The first is a chauvinism rooted in the racist thought that unless you receive your degree from a white, wealthy university or in a white, wealthy country, that you what you've learnt or how you've learnt it is some way inferior. And, of course, that's plainly false. Mm-hmm. Um, the second is because our visa system is designed to prop up our education market and it's one of our largest sectors that relies on a steady stream of new students, um, either reskilling or taking mandatory tests and courses to bridge their qualification gaps. Thirdly, there are other issues around, you know, diplomatic issues around reciprocity. Um, That is the the recognition of Australian degrees abroad and some aren't recognised in India um, and other places around the world. And 
you know, there are all, all, there are many others, including the vested interests of some of the professional associations that act as the assessing authority uh, for degrees in their industry and keeping people out of their industry is obviously a vested interest for some of those um, very high-skilled, high-paid industries. Um, Failing to recognise this prior learning or forcing people to go through lengthy processes means that international students can face challenges to enter into high-level tertiary study, um, you know, going into those higher-level degrees. But I think that what we need to remember is that this is more than just international students. Um, if you allow me, by way of anecdote, I was at a comedy show a few years ago and I got talking to the security guards and they were a father and son from Iraq who'd come to Australia as refugees and... The father was a renowned engineer in, in Iraq and had designed many buildings and, and many bridges, and he showed me on, on his phone. He was very proud of them. Um, and some of which, he said, had probably been destroyed by, you know, Australian armaments during the war that he fled. And while a local university knew who he was uh, and were allowing him, was allowing him to give talks to his engineering students, he was not allowed to practice um, as an engineer in Australia. And for him, that's a huge difference, you know, a difference between a minimum wage a security guard and an engineer's salary. Um, and or, or, for example, another one, um, I first met a man called Gamal who worked uh, when I was working at the cleaning union and he was a renowned lawyer in Sudan. Uh, and he had spent much of the last 20 years as a cleaner in Chadston. And while cleaners and security guards make really important contributions to our society, they're not nearly paid enough, uh, not paid nearly enough to do it. And I think the question for the listeners is, Imagine what the lives of these two men, their families, and the thousands like them could be if they'd been able to apply themselves in the trade in which they were um, trained. Um, and not just that, but imagine what our society, our community could be if we could really get um, everybody, you know, working in the in the areas that they're um, they're skilled in. I mean, the government should be doing way more to ensure the skills and talents of all workers in Australia, not just those from India, are fairly recognised. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, knowing that you know this is not just a Indian Australian issue um, that it is it will affect all migrants like and just knowing that you know that a conditional visa like a student visa will promote insecurity and vulnerability in Australia and I know even the report um, states that participants on temporary visas experienced I think like 64% experienced wage theft and then additionally one in four have experienced other forms of labor exploitation and not being able to be in the trade that you need uh, trade that you've already trained in and no recognition of prior learning can be incredibly difficult and also I guess maybe would you mind speaking on what are the current barriers to receiving support for labor exploitation while on a visa particularly student visa yeah, you know, just before I, I, I go there, I think I'd like to ask, um, you know, we need to ask ourselves why this announcement's been made about this new dialogue between India and, and Australia. Um, mm-hmm. And the federal government's faced some really extended backlash from Indian Australians and the international student community. And for the last two years, but particularly at the start of the pandemic, the government sent very strong messages to Indian students that they weren't welcome here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they also subjected Indians to extraordinarily punitive measures, including the threat of jail um, during the travel ban period. So, I mean, the move, this move could be seen as a ploy to kind of temper that discontent in the lead-up to, you know, domestic issues in the lead-up to the election. Um, but it's also, you know, could be seen to try and placate the major educational institutions who are screaming out for a return of international students, um, in part because the government's continued cuts to higher education mean that without international students, many would just, many universities would simply fall over. Um, but, sorry, just to return to your question, yeah. um, the... 
the visa system we have in this country is broken, or you could say it's acting exactly the way it's designed to, um, which is to create a hyper-precarious class of workers who are bound so closely to their employer, uh, they're forced to make a difficult choice between their residency and their workplace rights. Um, like the not-so-new phenomenon of permanent casuals in the workplace, we see a rise of the permanently temporary migrant. And this is because people are stuck on this treadmill um, trying to find a way to become a permanent resident. Uh, and one of the best ways to do that um, is to try and, you know, become an international student, learn new skills, move into a skilled stream where you are bound to an employer and you can't work for anybody else. Um, if the employer is not treating you correctly or treating you poorly, um, you end up, you know, having to choose between, uh, as I said before, your, whether you in, assert your workplace rights or whether you, um, by doing so, you put your, your residency at risk. Yeah, I think knowing that if you are locked into an employer and your your status in Australia is locked into it, uh makes you incredibly vulnerable and difficult to speak up. And, you know, we've seen lots of news across the university sector during COVID, as well as knowing that, you know, a lot of international students also experience sexual harassment. Um, there was a recent study that was recently released. And just knowing that there there aren't a lot, of, there, are, there isn't a lot of support and there wasn't a lot of support from university sectors during COVID. And then now that they want to boost their economic prospects, now they're being welcomed back. And I don't, I think, yeah, it's, as you said before, it is important to question why this move is being made in the first place. Um, I know that... In, in a, sorry, so, you know, just on that point, I mean, this, this has been a real shocker for, um, for the country. Like, the, in, the higher education sector, sector has become so reliant on international students mm-hmm. because of the neoliberal cuts to hi, higher education. Um, and what we're, what we're really seeing here is there were some great reports, like you, you pointed out, I think it was called, if, as if we were not human, I think the report was called out of um, out Sydney last year, had some shocking results. And, um, you know, not just about... Uh, not just about what was happening to international students, which was quite shocking, and the wage theft that kind of came along with it, um, but also just the sentiment from um, from people about how they were treated, not just at the unit by the universities, but by you know people in their workplace, but also more broadly in, in society. So I mean, there's there's this great kind of undercurrent of racism that kind of you know is the prevailing um, and dominant kind of thread that pulls all of this together. Yep. Um, I think even the notion of the skilled migrant um, is set up to fail and cause an us versus them and lots of, yeah, racism is the prevailing cause here <laughs> and yeah. that hasn't really gone away. And I think also um, there's a lot of like logistical issues, there's vulnerability, there's wage theft, there's uh, you know difficulty in sponsorships, all these things. But what is also important to remember, as you've said, with being like temporarily permanent or Mm. Yeah. Um, is that it seems like, you know, a lot of migrant migrants workers also have no other choice but to stay in Australia because the migration system prefers young people who have an Australian education and Australian work experience, making many migrant workers spend most of their young working years in Australia on temporary visas and being away from your country of origin, losing a lot of those social connections and then, you know, having to pay international student fees, working full-time, trying to pay for that on your own. Um, I think all of that is really important. And being here for, like, your entire young working years can have a a huge impact on you. Would you mind maybe speaking on 
what are the effects of spending yeah most of your young years on a permanent <laughs> on a temporary visa that ends up being relatively permanent on for, away from your country of origin difficult for me to speak to that having not done that myself yeah. but I can tell you that from the responses to the survey uh, and we did you know over 700 people responded and we did more than 50 in-depth interviews that um, people that live in Australia on temporary visas uh, some of as you said at the very top for up to 13 years live in a constant state of stress um, there's many years trying to build a pathway to permanency only to have the government change the rules or an employer change their mind about a sponsorship or you get fired or the company falls over or um, it's difficult to stay in a regional area for personal reasons or, you know, just the fact that people need to find a way to support themselves without the same social safety net that's there for Australian citizens. So what we need to do is we need to reform our migration system into one that provides a real genuine pathway to permanent residency for those migrants that want to stay in Australia because what's happened too much in the last 20 years is We've, the, the pendulum has swung too far away um, from permanent, res, uh, permanent migration towards temporary forms of migration. But as I said, what we see now is people who are permanently temporary because they're constantly trying to find that very, very slim pathway to permanence. And you're right, many people spend all of their 20s and some of their 30s just trying to become permanent. And for many, you know, if they aren't successful and they have to go... Um, back to their to their country of birth, they've missed 10 or 15 years of networking and building connections and their family might have moved on. Like, it's a really difficult prospect and it's a very stressful thing and we see that in the results of the report. Yeah, I think knowing that the permanent residency takes five years on average, that sometimes up to 13, probably longer, but then also knowing that the permanent visas are so tightly controlled that it is just a constant state of temporary or, you know, having your life in limbo. Um, I think, you know, I think when you were taking away from this conversation, we've obviously discussed a lot here. Um, How do you think that we can further support the education and employment and well-being of migrant workers and students? Yeah, it's tricky. Um, I think one concrete thing people can do is you know, take the, the next step when they're hearing news reports about people, people on visas um, because the system relies on us not understanding just how unfair the system is. So it's very easy to hear 482 or 887, 192, 196 as just numbers. But for migrants, those numbers are absolutely everything. Mm-hmm. They are where you can live, who you can work for, how many hours a week you can work. Our system currently benefits business at the expense of the wider community and we all need to start turning up um, with migrants and supporting their struggles. And I guess um, cheekily, if there's anyone out there who's particularly fired up this morning about this and wants to get in touch, um, they can head over and find us at migrantworkers.org.au and we'd love to have a chat to them. Okay, wonderful. Thank you so much for such an insightful and uh, important interview. And given the recent news, it's always, yeah. I think all of our listeners are very critical, but um, being able to know that there's also actions that people can take is really important as well. But, yeah, thank you so much for joining us here today, Matt. Thanks. Have a great day. You too. Bye. Bye. And that was an interview with Matt Kunkel, who is the CEO of the Migrant Workers Centre, who joined us today to discuss the visa and migration pathways. We discussed the centre's Lives in Limbo report and the recent news that Australia will begin recognising degrees from India. Burning brighter somewhere 
Got to be birds flying higher in a sky more blue. If I can dream of a better land where all my brothers walk hand in hand, tell me why. Understanding sometime strong winds of promise that will blow away the doubt and fear. If I can dream of a warmer sun where hope keeps shining on everyone, tell me why. Oh, why? Oh, why want that sun? This is 3CR Monday Breakfast. No need to let you know who that artist was. I think that is one of the most, well, one of the most identifiable voices of the 20th century. But just in case, it's Elvis with his 1968 classic, If I Can Dream. Great thrill to be able to play that for you this morning. It is a Monday morning. It is Monday, the 28th of March. I hope you're going well out there. You've just heard a interview with Matt Kunkel from the Migrant Workers Centre. That interview is available online, and that's the same for all 3CR interviews and shows, 3cr.org.au. Evan Wallace is my name, and it's good to have your company this morning. Coming up a little bit later in the show, we're going to be talking with Paul Power from the Refugee Council of Australia about New Zealand and Australia finally agreeing. Well, I suppose in this case, it's very much um, the, the delay on Australia's end. So Australia finally accepting, a better way to put it, um, New Zealand's 
this generous offer to resettle 450 refugees. That's uh, in about 20 minutes or so, and then also talking education policy with Naomi Barnes, um, and then too, we're talking all things fire, forest, and Tasmania with David Bowman. That's all ahead, and right now, well, he was one of the absolute highlights of the Queenscliff by the Pier Festival. He was a lot of fun. Uh, He's all the way from Shepparton. It is MC Briggs with his, well, it's one of his classics. I think you'll know it. It's here. It's featuring Katie Baker. You're on 3CR, 855 AM, online, streaming, or, well, sometime in the future with a podcast. Enjoy. When they ask me where I belong, when they ask what I'm dreaming of, I can promise you'll never forget who we are. The one to break through, I am. On the road that takes you, we are. Here, I am. Here, I can promise you'll never forget who we are. The one to break through, I am. On the road that takes you, we are. Here, I am. Here, all these hours amount to this, and my home can account to this. You prove you can take the hits, all instruction don't shoot you miss. So we laced up, faced up, home or away, tore the place up. We made them afraid they wanna face us. Pats on the back, brother, great stuff. They only push through if you let them. They only gonna fail if you test them. They're gonna get taught a very hard lesson if they wanna ask these questions. Just like when they ask me where I'm from, I say here. When they ask me where I'm going, I say here. When they ask me where I'm Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. Don't be concerned. 
to 3CR Breakfast. Evan Wallace is my name. Wasn't that a beautiful tune? That was We All Have with Julia Stone. And if you recognise the other voice that was in there, well, that means that you're a fan of The National. It was Matt Berninger as well in there too. How cool was that harmony? A beautiful tune. Um, at the Queenscliff by the Pier Festival. It was so nice hearing Julia Stone also cover Blood Buzz Ohio. She led with that with her set. Obviously a bit of collaboration going on between the uh, the two artists. And great to see that all unfold. That was from her album last year, 60 Summers. And If you enjoyed that, well, lots more live music around Melbourne, around Victoria, and encourage everyone to be supporting Australian artists. It's been a tough, tough couple of years and really good to be able to support them on 3CR. And if you are a fan of supporting artists and musicians and different music genres, well, always encourage people out there to subscribe to 3CR too. And if you want more details on subscribing, do go to www.3cr.com. 3cr.org.au. All right, so 
Um, we know that uh, um, over the last number of years, school students across Australia, across the world, have been doing an incredible job at uh, really drawing attention to the perilous state that our environment is in as the temperature warms up, as climate extremes continue to shape our daily existence. Over the last number of days, the Student Strike for Climate have been out in Melbourne drawing attention to these major issues. Last week, 3CR was at the old Treasury buildings, and this is Chi Chong speaking at the rally uh, to really, really um, make that call for climate action. It's 3CR. My name's Evan Wallace, and this is Chi Chong. So I'm Shi Zhong, I'm in year nine, and I joined School Strike a little more than a year ago. <laughs> growing up, growing up, the stories I got told about my family's home country were predominantly about pollution. Not about my culture, the food, or the people, but about how factories were pumping out smoke, about how the pollution rates were the highest in the world, about the smog in the air that filled people's lungs. And as I grew up, I also learned about the sandstorms that would stain the atmosphere red and have gotten worse with climate change. How people would wear, need to wear face coverings just to walk down the street so they would not get sand in their eyes. And then I learned that this was all a part of their daily lives. What was made out to be so tragic, sufferable and scary when I was a child was all normal. It angers me and it infuriates me that the greed from corporations and people in power is forcing communities to live through environmental destruction and it's become normal for them. Their fixation on profit is putting so many lives and communities at risk, communities that are contributing the least to the in increase of climate change but are facing the worst of its impacts. And then... Just last week, it was announced that the government no longer has a legal duty of care for us. It's frustrating and it's infuriating. It shows us once again that our government is willing to do anything so that they can keep their profits and their power. So let's channel that anger and let's scream at the top of our lungs while we march and let's create some change. We're all well aware of the climate crisis that is facing our country and earth right now. The ongoing floods in New South Wales and Queensland have no doubt been amplified by climate change. Future floods and natural disasters are expect expected to occur more frequently with more extreme and destructive consequences if our government does not act now. And adding to that are the frightening facts revealed by the IPCC report this year. With the way things are going now, the world is set to face more extreme and destructive weather events, increased fire risks of 10 to 70 percent by 2050, reduced snow cover of up to 60 percent by 2070, and an increase of climate refugees as more and more parts of the world become inhabitable. What's even more frightening is that just recently, the Arctic has faced a 30 degree increase and the Antarctic a 40 degree increase compared to its normal temperatures. At last year's COP26 Glasgow summit, Scott Morrison couldn't even do the bare minimum and signed zero pledges agreeing to phase out coal. 
Shame! Scott Morrison's government wants to tell us that adequate solutions to the climate crisis is relying on new technologies which haven't even been invented yet. Shame! We have had enough. We need a fair transition to renewable energy now so that every person has the right to be able to live safely wherever they may be. We are here to make it clear to the Morrison government that his government needs to put people over profits. We are here to make it... Uh, what do we want? When do we want it? Today we have an, an incredible line of speakers here to sh share their visions and stories of climate justice. We recognize that the voices of frontline communities must always be at the center of our fight for climate justice. Three C R breakfast, and that was Chi Chong speaking at the strike for climate last week. There's a lot more action that is ahead, and if you'd like to see or learn a bit more about uh, the different rallies and um, actions that are being led by the School Strike for Climate campaign, go to www.schoolstrikeforclimate.com/upcoming-actions. Um, but you'll get there if you just get to the School Strike for Climate web page today in Melbourne, 3.45 p.m., outside Tim Wilson's office, there'll be an action there. There's a lot of targeted uh, key electorate-based actions and activities uh, that are being led by the School Strike for Climate crew. Really excellent that they are there drawing such wonderful attention to a pressing issue facing all of us. And on today's show, on 3CR Breakfast, we're talking about that impact and the impact of climate change in Tasmania, looking specifically at the increased number of fires that are occurring at the moment in the wet Gondwanan rainforest with David Bowman. That's coming up a little bit later on 3CR Breakfast. Now we're going to play the Pierce Brothers. Wow, they were a huge, huge showstopper at uh, the Queenscliff Festival, really, really lighting up the dance floor. Um, massive energy just for two musicians swapping between all sorts of great instruments, harmonica, didgeridoo, guitars, great vocals, some percussion in there as well. They were a lot of fun. And this is their song, Flying Home. It is from their 2013 album, Harlequin Dream. 3CR Breakfast. For a while, I can see your face light up as the cold came down the line. The conversation took new territory tonight. Flying on my own way
3CR Community Radio, giving the voice to community since 1976. Did I stumble? I'm a little bit in
This is 3CR Breakfast. That was Kim Churchill with his classic second-hand car. Hope you enjoyed that one. This is 3CR Monday Breakfast. It is a quarter to eight. And before that, you heard the Pierce Brothers with Flying Home. Last week, the Morrison government finally accepted New Zealand government's offer to resettle 450 refugees who are either still on Nauru or held in detention in Australia. Joining us to talk about this decision is Paul Power, CEO of the Refugee Council of Australia. Thanks for coming on the show this morning, Paul. Oh, good morning, Evan. Paul, New Zealand has agreed to settle 450 refugees with over 1,300 people still waiting to be resettled who are in Nauru or PNG in Australia. Do we know who will be prioritised for these places and, and how this prioritisation will work? Well, the um, people given highest priority will be people uh, still on Nauru, um, and there's currently about 112 um, refugees there. Um, and then um, and uh, about 76 of those uh, people ha- have current applications in for resettlement to uh, Canada and the United States. So the, uh, the people who have, uh, don't have applications for either of those countries in will, will be given priority. Um, and uh, once the uh, places for people from the rural field, um, then the focus will be on uh, people who've been medically transferred to Australia, um, of which there are about 51 in detention and more than 1,100 um, living in, in a community, either in community detention or on bridging visas. So the focus will be on yeah, people in Nauru in, in, in Australia. Um, and the deal, does not, the deal does not cover people who uh, held in PNG uh, because the Australian government recently ended its... Um, deal with the PNG government. Um, however, UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency, um, has negotiated with uh, the New Zealand government and the PNG governments for uh, you know, people from PNG in need of resettlement to be uh, um, considered separately as, as part of an arrangement which is additional to these, four, these 450 places. It's easy to forget when there is a level of, of positive news, but for, for many of the refugees who will be resettled in Australia, in New Zealand, they've been in, in locked detention. Can you paint a picture of what the Australian government policy or refugee policy has meant for how these refugees have been forced to live over the past nine years? Uh, yeah, well, um, uh, the people who are affected by this policy would have arrived in Australian waters uh, sometime between mid-July 2013 and the first few months of 2014. Um, and so they've been living in a situation of, of limbo for uh, nine years. Um, uh, yeah, so... Uh, and, of course, they were all immediately detained, uh, sent to Christmas Island Detention Centre and then either to Manus Island, detention centre or, or to the detention centre in Nauru, the conditions were absolutely appalling um, in, in both cases. Um, 
it, you know, people were left, um, were really put in a situation where there was a serious attempt to break their spirit and force them to, to go home. And of, of the 3,127 people who were affected by this policy, um, around uh, 650 to 700 actually did chose to go back to their, their countries of origin. Um, but, um, yeah, more than... Uh, you know, 2,400, um, you know, did not. And, yeah, they've really been through hell for years. Um, in after about uh, four years or five years in locked detention, um, people were successively moved in or progressively moved into... Um, well, into the community in... in um, uh, Nauru and in PNG, but I mean the conditions in uh, you know living in the community were, were were better than they were in detention, but still quite difficult. Um, and uh, yes, then um, and and over a period of time, many of the people who are actually affected by this policy would have been brought to Australia for medical treatment that uh, they couldn't risk, well, couldn't actually be properly provided in uh, PNG on the route. And so now the majority of people have actually been moved to Australia. Um, uh, of course, people may recall that um, close to 200 of the people who came to Australia were brought to the country under an independent um, medical evacuation process, which uh, came about because of uh, legislation which was passed by uh, the Labor Party, the Greens and crossbenchers um, during the last parliament. Um, that legislation has since been repealed, but the majority of the people who were brought under that legislation were brought to Australia and left in detention for quite some time. Um, and over the past year, we've seen some, but not all of those people, um, who were detained in Australia basically as a punishment for having been evacuated under a process that the current government didn't approve. We've seen yeah, many of those people moved out of detention, but there are still 51 uh, left in detention. And those 51 people have been in, in locked detention for most of the past um, nine years. Uh, and, you know, the uh, while the government talks about uh, uh, the people who were affected by this policy as though they should never have come and they should go back to their home country... Um, the great majority of them, um, well, all of them have had some form of assessment, or nearly all of them have had some form of assessment of their refugee status, and the uh, great majority of them have actually been found to be in need of refugee protection um, so that they cannot be returned home because of the fear of, uh, of serious persecution or the risks uh, for their own lives that they would face in their home country. Um, and so this is, you know the reason for the need for countries such as uh, the United States and New Zealand to step in and, and make resettlement offers. You know, the Australian government is saying, we don't want these people to remain within our country, uh, but um, they can't possibly be sent home because of the risks that they face. And so, you know, the Australian government has to find uh, some other country, some close ally or friend um, that's prepared to uh, resettle refugees in this situation and on so, that one so, and, and on that one Paul this offer from New Zealand has been in place for for such a, a long period of time 
Why do you think the direction from the federal government's changed? Oh, um, I mean, that's one of the hardest things to understand. Um, and it, really, the New Zealand government, um, it's been successive governments, was actually um, originally proposed you know, under a conservative national government in New Zealand John, when John T was Prime Minister and then his successor from the, from the conservative side of politics, Bill English, um, reiterated the offer and Jacinda Ardern, the Labor government, has, has uh, reiterated the offer as well. So, um, yeah, at a time we've had, um, you know, when Tony Abbott was Prime Minister, he said that he didn't want New Zealand to be second prize, which was a, a terribly insulting way to um, respond to a generous offer from a friend. Um, the... I think the issue for people in the government um, has been that they've, you know, feared that people would um, be resettled in New Zealand and be able to come to Australia as New Zealand citizens can, um, uh, because of the, you know, the relatively free movement between the two countries for citizens of both countries. Um, but uh, you know, I mean, there, it, it, it's really been about you know, political positioning, political posturing. Um, and it's interesting that, you know, just prior to this election, um, you know, the government has ac accepted the offer finally. So perhaps, um, you know, the their sense is that, you know, the public sentiment is not with them um, and, you know, that it actually makes sense for them to, to try to resolve the situation of refugees in the situation finally. But, I mean, it's... And it's just the amount of suffering that's been inflicted on people is shocking. Um, and, uh, you know, people, the people involved um, have lost nine years of their lives, you know, which they'll never get back. And while they've been stuck in this uh, state of limbo, you know, uh, and all to make you know, political points to the Australian electorate. And, Paul, what lies ahead for those refugees who won't be settled in New Zealand? Yeah, well, the... Um, you know, there are 1,384 people, as far as we can work out, currently in Nauru, PNG, or in Australia, affected by this policy. Um, around 270 people have access for um, resettle have applications in for resettlement to the United States. Um, the Refugee Council of Australia and, and two Canadian organisations, Mosaic and Ads Up Canada, have been involved in putting forward um, or raising funds for and putting forward sponsorship um, applications to Canada for, for people who've been excluded from the US process. So we currently have 159 people with applications for private sponsorship to Canada. And now these 450 places for New Zealand mean that um, there are about 880 resettlement places available in total. And that assumes that everyone um, who has an application in for the United States and Canada is accepted. So that's a maximum number of places available. And as I mentioned, 1,384 people in need of somewhere to go. And so there are 500, mm. and 500 places fewer than, um, you know, uh, than are needed, and, and this is the problem that people face, that um, quite a number of people are going to miss out even with this generous offer from New Zealand. Oh, it's a really, really confronting and awful, awful reality that's there. Finally, Paul, you mentioned it's an election year this year. Just wondering from your perspective whether you're seeing 
any difference at all between the policies that the two major parties, the Liberal Party and the Labor Party, are taking with respect to refugee policy for, for this year's election? On this issue of offshore processing, there's no difference. Um, so the Labor Party will just continue doing what the Coalition has been doing. I mean, the major difference um, in, is in relation to temporary protection, the temporary protection policy, which has affected... There are about 18,000 refugees um, who've come by boat prior to um, mid-2013 who've been denied permanent protection um, and their life is difficult because of you know the inability to settle down in Australia. So the Labor Party said they would abolish that. Um, apart from that, um, there probably aren't too many differences. The Labor Party is also suggesting that it would uh, increase the Refugee and Humanitarian Program, the Refugee Resettlement Program. So there are some differences, but certainly in relation to this offshore processing policy, um, uh, no, no discernible difference between the two major parties, because it was the Labor Party that implemented it when Kevin Rudd was Prime Minister second time around. Paul, really appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for talking us through the announcement and the developments. And if people would like to support the work of the Refugee Council of Australia, how can they get involved? Uh, well, yeah, there's a lot of information on our website, refugeecouncil.org.au. Brilliant. That's the place to go. Paul, thanks so much for your time. Great. Thank you, That was Paul Power talking about the Australian government's decision to finally accept New Zealand's offer of resettlement for 450 refugees. This is 3CR Monday Breakfast. My name's Evan Wallace. It's coming up to 8am. And right now, it's time for Client Liaison. This is World of Our Love. After the break, it's Naomi Barnes with All Things Education Policy. Hope you're having a good morning out there. Yeah. 
He love a good book. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast. Evan Wallace is my name. You just heard World of Our Love by Client Liaison. That is from their 2016 Diplomatic Immunity album. I like the energy there. I like the verb. I like the passion. Uh, And yeah, they're a joy. A joy to see live. In case uh, you're just tuning in, uh, all of these tunes are coming from the incredible lineup that were there at this week's Queenscliff by the Peer Music Festival. It was an absolute treat. Um, and who also was a treat? Well, that uh, can belong also to Mummakin and Spender. Played them last week. There's lots of excellent positive feedback about uh, the tune that we played. And so we're going to play another song. This is Bluebell. Uh, it's a beautiful one. Um, and yeah, I think I think you'll like it. It's uh, great harmonies in there. Uh, really sort of um, really sort of um, reflective lyrics. Good sound. It's 3CR Breakfast. Mama Kin and Spender with Blue Bell. Soulful, pretty wonderful, Bluebell by Mummakin and Spender. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast. Evan Wallace is my name and it is 8.06am. Joining us for a quick chat on education policy is Naomi Barnes, who is a senior lecturer at the School of Teacher Education and Leadership at the Queensland University of Technology. Last week, she wrote an excellent article on the conversation about where the current focus on education policy lies and what we can do to change it. Good morning, Naomi. 
morning, Evan. Naomi, in your article, you've drawn attention to the idea of moral panic in describing how education features uh, in how both parties are conjuring up their respective education policies. Can you tell us a bit more about what you mean by moral panic? Um, so when we talk about moral panic, we are talking about taking ideas which are which are going to which people who don't necessarily understand how education is evolving at the moment and instead taking on the things which make us frightened today. So things which make us frightened today are the pandemic, are uh, war in Europe, are uh, um Things that uh, we might have things like falling, falling literacy scores, and these are not necessarily researched-informed approaches to the way education is happening at the moment. So, because they're not research-informed, they're more what the public thinks is going on in education due to nostalgia, uh, due to um, things like. Internet safety uh, and all the things that we see which make us frightened, people are making policy about those instead of what is actually happening in education. I think you've captured that really well. So in education policy, why do you think this is happening? Why do you think this has been the shift to focusing on issues that really aren't at the core of what could be done to improve the education system in Australia, but rather looking at some... Um, yeah, quite scary topics such as uh, online safety or literacy rates. What, what do you think it is that's that's um, behind this shift? One of the things which has been emerging is that there is there is the, the mo movement to federal education back in the mid two thousands meant that uh, the federal government started taking control of three aspects of compulsory schooling which are the Australian curriculum, are the uh, training of teachers and are the research which informs education. Now, they didn't... It used to be very state-based, so now what has happened is the Federal Education Department has to make a statement which appeals to all Australians. So they draw on these national ideas like National Identity and Anzac Day, which is what the Coalition is drawing on, the Labor Party is drawing on internet safety, and so therefore they're trying to capture a they're trying to capture a an issue which will appeal to all Australians rather than rather than what each individual school really needs. So they're trying to make these broad umbrella statements, which sound good to a broad population, but don't actually work for an individual school. In a piece of research that you referenced in the Conversation article, you've drawn attention to what you've defined as the New Right 2.0 and, and their efforts to further polarise education policy. Can you give us a bit of a sense as to how this is playing out in Australia? So one of the... So I research what are traditionally... Uh, what, which what might be called think tanks. At the moment, now there's not just new; they're not just right-wing think tanks. There's left-wing think tanks. There's centralised think tanks, central um, centrist think tanks, and what they do is 
they capture all the information that the Australian population might be interested in and they package it for their particular party that they uh, traditionally lobby or are hired to uh, knowledge broke for. And so because the coalition is in power at the moment, there's been a lot of movement in these new right think tanks. And we call them New Right 2.0 because they use social media much more effectively than think tanks ever have before. They used to put out little magazines and things saying things like, we should be studying more economics in school. Whereas now, ones like... um, the Institute for Public Affairs and the Centre for Independent Studies have actually learnt how to use social media very effectively to push out the ideas that they're working on, that they're knowledge brokering for um, the coalition government. But don't get me wrong, the Liberal, uh, the Labor Party also have these think tanks, and so do the, uh, and so do other organisations that are working to broken knowledge, so all this massive amount of information that we have out there in the world at the moment, somebody has to aggregate it. So these think tanks um, are aggregating that knowledge for political parties to then use and uh, put into their education policy. And finally, Naomi, while we have these instances of, of uh, knowledge brokerage and, and over-politicisation, it, it is an election year. What are the yeah. issues that you would really like to see receive attention when it comes to education policy uh, come May in Australia with the federal election? So uh, we have to remember that we have to talk to the federal portfolio, a lot of the things which people talk about that education needs are state-based. So as I said before, there's three things which the federal politicians are responsible for within compulsory schooling, and that is the Australian curriculum, which does need to be upgraded to include things which help students thoughtfully and intelligently deal with the internet, but also teachers. So um, that is an issue. But we talked to teachers, or my other authors talked to some teachers, and they said that we need more targeted professional learning, which is part of teacher training. So one of the things is that teachers leave university, which the federal government is responsible for, and then they have a long career as teaching. So there's only so much a university can do. So there would be more targeted professional learning. Um, we would like to see more... Uh, people would like to see more parent community uh, involvement in schools. Often parents are asked just to fundraise by the PNC, but they would like to be more involved in helping out at the school and forming localised um, curriculum. And basically... Um, Some of the things which came through from the article as well is that teachers need to be uh, supported in mental health, uh, with helping students with mental health, um, and also supporting their... uh, There's a rising increase in anxiety, so therefore um, this is playing out in schools and teachers are not trained in this area. And also funding arrangements, because the funding arrangements in schools at the moment are we're seeing that there are... Um, government schools which still have asbestos um, that is taking years to be removed that is just buried in the soil. So there are localised issues where we want movement on things like making government schools safer, which requires uh, 
a rejigging of the funding model. Naomi Barnes, really appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for coming on 3CR Breakfast. Thanks for having me. That was Naomi Barnes, Senior Lecturer at the School of Teacher Education and Leadership at Queensland University of Technology. You're on 3CR. It is 8.15am. Here is a Australian classic. If you're someone that spends a little bit of time by any parts of the water that define and make up Port Phillip Bay, then maybe this one's for you. And then also maybe too, if you've spent time in Sydney, it could also be a tune that has a bit of relevance. It is Mr. Paul Kelly and from St Kilda to King's Cross. I'm Evan and coming up after the break, it's David Bowman with all things fire, Gondwana land and Tasmania. From St Kilda to King's Cross It's 13 hours on a bus I press my face against the glass And watch the white lines rushing past And all around me felt like all inside me And my body left me And my soul went running Have you ever seen King's Cross When the rain is falling soft I came in on the evening bus From Oxford Street I cut across And if the rain don't fall too hard Everything shines just like a postcard Everything goes on just the same Friends. I keep my mouth well shut, I cross their open hands. Where the palm trees have it high I give you all of Sydney Harbour All that land and all that water For that one sweet promenade I give you all of Sydney Harbour All that land and all that water For that one sweet promenade This is Jazz Party and you're listening to 
sit out there in the covering In the baskings of a holy night And I was lucid and conscious And hovering like a firefly Mine stretched out on the canopy It put its arms out slow And I heard the whispers of silence Floating down from the radio Sixteen days under a southern sun And there were times when I thought that I wouldn't mind it if I lost my mind out there You wouldn't believe me if I told you so The things I saw were enough to make the man in me
Oh, that has to be one of the most iconic guitar licks of the last 10 years of Australian music, Southern Sun by Boy and Bear. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast. I'm Evan, and unfortunately, we're not going to be able to bring you the interview that we had planned with David Bowman from the University of Tasmania. Um, really do hope that we're able to bring it to you next week as an interview. Stay tuned for that and stay tuned for more great programming on 3CR. Coming up next, it's Women on the Line, always excellent, excellent radio. It's been such a pleasure having your company this morning. I hope you've enjoyed the tunes and our uh, conversations too with Naomi Barnes from Queensland University of Technology about education policy and uh, also, too, uh, learned a lot from the conversation with Paul Power from Refugee Council of Australia. If you'd like to listen back to any of those interviews, they're all on our website, 3cr.org.au. And we'll have a track list as well, too, from all the tunes that we've played today. And uh, yeah, I've always enjoyed bringing you great music and enjoy your company on a Monday morning. I hope the day ahead is a positive one. Hope that there's a few adventures ahead uh, this week and that there's some good moments in there too. Evan Wallace is my name. Coming up right next is from his wonderful 1999 Messenger album. It's a cover of a go-betweens classic. It is... Cattle and Cane by the famous Jimmy Little. It's 3CR Monday Breakfast. Take care and we'll be back on air next week, 7am on a Monday. But there's more breakfast programming tomorrow, 7am on Tuesday. Catch you later, everyone. Do take care. Well, I recall a schoolboy walking home through fields of cane of tin and timber And in the sky Rain of fallen cinders From time to time the waste Memory wastes
recall the same A reply A plan you once had From time down to mind The time was bad So I knew where I was Alone So at home about a voice in our own country we've got a reason to be screaming out where's our voice in this country you know not that i want to be a part of the constitution for that you know that's why 3cr is so important to, to me and this community here we've got a voice but it's not you know we're entitled to a bigger voice than what we've got but it's all about having a voice subscribe to 3cr fiercely independent and community controlled Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03 9419 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. While you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.